0: But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. And the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory." And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of, God, of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was heavy, was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the Ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out and said, They have brought around to us the Ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send to its place. Send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, well, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice. "'According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, "'for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. "'So you must make images of your tumors "'and images of your mice that ravaged the land "'and give glory to the God of Israel. "'Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you "'and your gods and your land. "'Why should you harden your hearts "'as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? "'After he had dealt severely with them, "'did they not send the people away and they departed? "'Now then,' Take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it does go up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it, sh- then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. Though the men did so, and they took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They neither turned to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping the wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath saying, The Philistines have returned to the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it upon you. And the men of Kiriath came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. let's pray again and just ask for the Lord to teach us um, through his word today. Lord Jesus, thank you for this story that you have written. Lord, every story um, is penned by you because you are the sovereign God. You are the ancient of days. And so, Lord, as we come to your word today, would you teach us? Would you speak to us? Would you convict us where we need it? Would you cause our hearts to worship? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's some really weird um, TV shows on TV. I know you were thinking the same thing when you read this. Um, there's some really weird TV shows, and some of them get really popular. There's one TV show that seemed to gain a lot of steam, and I remember seeing it for the first time and thinking, oh, that's interesting. Um, it's a TV show called The Masked Singer. I don't know if anybody has ever seen this TV show. Um, but anyways, the, the concept is, is there's some sort of famous celebrity who goes on and performs and, and sings in front of you know, a whole bunch of people. But the thing is, is they're masked, so they have this elaborate costume, and it's always weird and strange and funky. Sometimes it's like a mouse or it's a lion, and it's just this really elaborate costume, and their voice is all tweaked and changed. And and as the show's going on, there's judges, and they're being given clues about who this person might be, and they're trying to figure it out, and they're trying to guess it. And then the whole thing kind of crescendos when finally, the performer takes the mask off and reveals who they really are. Right, and everyone, you, you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that was, you know, I don't know, I am not gonna, i can't think of a celebrity right now, but I, I, I can't believe uh, that was Sean Connery. He passed away, so it probably wouldn't be him. But anyways, <laughs> right, but like somebody where you're like, oh my gosh, right? Unbelievable. I can't believe it was them because they're, they're finally unmasked and you see them for who they are. And I think about that show and... And, and it's kind of this, somewhat of, the, of this picture of life where there's these moments in life where all of a sudden we, you see someone for who they are, right? Someone, can, you can kind of be around someone for the, for the longest time. And yet every once in a while there's these moments where the mask is lifted and you see someone for exactly who they are. No more hiding, no more charades, no more, you know, voice transfiguration or whatnot. You just see them as they are. And there's, there's, a, there's a few places this happens in life. Marriage tends to be one of those places, right? If, if anyone in this room is married, or even if you just can think about the concept of being around someone 24-7, you can imagine there's going to be moments when all of a sudden you see, oh, you're different. Oh, I didn't know this about you. You're actually really evil and mean and selfish. Right, I remember like the first year of my marriage to my wife. We had many moments like this, mostly her seeing me, where she's just like, "Nick, who are you?" Right? Some of those, you know, we we kind of joke about it, but but some of those are really serious, heavy moments too. Of like, "Wow, I had I had no idea this was true about you. You 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 hid this for so long." And we, we, there's moments in life where this happens. If you ever decide to run for public office, right, get ready for lots of moments like this, where your whole life is just going to be exposed. Right, but there's moments in life where, where we just see someone for exactly who they are. And I think if we're honest, we're, we're pretty terrified of running into moments like that. We, we try to like to avoid situations where we might be caught off guard in a moment like that and be exposed and people see who we really are and what we really think and what we're really like. Because we don't want to be exposed. But God is very different than us. God longs to show everyone exactly who He is. He is not someone who wants to hide, who wants to fool you, who wants to uh, deceive you and and be hid from your eyes. He wants to reveal to all the world exactly who He is and what He's like. He's very different than us. We're scared of those moments. He longs for those moments. He longs to reveal who he is and put on display who he is. In fact, he's been doing this since the very beginning of time. It was, it was actually the whole point of creation is so that God could reveal who he is to the created world. That was the whole point. We're, we're told this many times throughout scripture. In fact, in Romans chapter one, it says this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The whole purpose of creation is that God would show off, here's who I am, here's what I'm like. Or in John chapter 20, John, the author of one of the gospels, says, here's the whole reason why I'm writing this account of Jesus' life, and it's this, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So even the followers of this God put into writing who God is so that we can see what he's like. Or in Galatians chapter 1, when Paul is talking and he says, I was saved, I put my faith in Jesus, and the reason that happened is this, is that God was pleased to reveal his son to me. That it brought God pleasure to reveal to this man Paul who he was. God's delighted to do do that. He wants to reveal himself to his creation. In fact, we're told that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That God's glory will be revealed. And what God's glory is, is it's the revealing of his nature and his character. This is what God's been doing since the very beginning of time, is showing us who he is. And it's the point of the scriptures And in fact, it was the people of God, Israel, the the, the chosen nation that God created, it was their very purpose as a people to do this, to show the glory of God to the nations. That's why God created the people of Israel. That's why He created this people and says, you're going to be my people, and you are going to put the glory of who I am on display to the nations. Ridiculous, fly right here. Mr. a be. You're, you're going to put the glory of God on display to the nations. That's, that's part of your purpose. And where we arrive in the book of 1 Samuel is that the people of God have completely forgotten who their God is. And because they've forgotten who their God is, how in the world are they supposed to operate in their purpose? How are they supposed to display to the nations who God is if they don't know who He is? So that's, that's why we, when we come to the book of 1 Samuel, it's such a dark place, is because they have stopped Remembering who God is. They've stopped reading his word. They've stopped hearing his voice. And so they have forgotten what he's like. And so because of that, God's removed his voice. He's removed his favor. And as we saw last week, he's removed his very own presence. Which the ark that that we've read about here is, is representative of God's dwelling presence among the people. And that has been removed and captured by the Philistines. And it is representative of God saying, I am removing my presence from among you because of your sin, because you've forgotten who I am, you have no idea who I am, you're just like all the other nations. And so, because God's people have failed to put His character and His glory on display, He's saying, I'm just going to do it myself. Which is what He does in these chapters. And we see in here, a few things in particular that that God reveals about who He is. That we're just going to talk about for a few minutes. And the first one is this, is that God reveals about Himself that He is alive. He is a living God. Now, I'm going to use the name Yahweh. We've talked about this a little bit, but every time you see in your Old Testament the word Lord capitalized in, in all capital letters, it is, it's the word Yahweh, the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the name of God that He has called Himself. When He reveals Himself to His people, He says, I am Yahweh. That's, that's my name. That's who I am. I'm, I'm eternal. I'm totally self-dependent. Everything depends on me. I need nothing. I am Yahweh. And we're told many times in the New Testament, who Yahweh is, hello, Uh, who Yahweh is, many times in the New Testament, we're told it's Jesus. Jesus himself says, that's who I am. Many of the writers of the letters say the same thing. So when we say Yahweh, we are also saying Jesus as well. So we can say this, that what we see in this passage, we see that Jesus is alive. We can say that even though it's not Easter, okay? We can still say it right? So the Philistines who've captured the Ark of God, enemies with Israel, they're they're, they're a polytheistic people, meaning they worship many gods. They have no problem adding another god into their repertoire. In fact, the more the merrier, right? If we can get more gods on our side, then the better things will go for us. And so that's exactly what happens with the Ark that they capture from Israel. They recognize this seems to be the throne of the God of Israel. So now that we've captured it, It's not like they're going to be like, well, we have loyalty to our God, so we won't worship this God. No, they just say, add him in. Come on, let's get more. He's clearly done some powerful things in the past. Just kind of add him in to our repertoire of gods here. Bring him into our pantheon. And so they take this ark and they march it about 19 miles to the south and they place it right next to their chief and greatest God and his name is Dagon. Some statue that they have to Dagon. And they place the ark. Right next to him, saying, Come on in, welcome. They're happy to add him right next to Dagon. But more fundamentally, what's happening here is this ark was kind of like a war trophy for the Philistines. And by placing it next to Dagon, they're essentially saying, Dagon is victorious over Yahweh. He's victorious over the God of Israel. And we will place him next to Dagon as a way of saying, Dagon is superior not just to Israel, but to their God. And so that's exactly what they do, essentially saying, the God of Israel, you're welcome here. You can stay so long as you stand beside Dagon and serve his purposes. And the truth is, that's not just an ancient practice. That's something that's happening every single day. There are many people that are eager to simply add Jesus to their pantheon of gods in their life. Say, yeah, Jesus, come on in. Some cool stories, some powerful things you might do. If you make me happy and healthy and blessed, yeah, come on in. Welcome. Bring those blessings my way. You You can sit right next to my other idols. You might prove useful. And there are many people that are placing Jesus right next to their idols and essentially saying, Jesus, you can stay. You're welcomed in my life. You can be a part of my life. So long as you serve my purposes, so long as you don't, don't tell me how, how I can talk. Don't tell me what I can say and what I can't say with my, with my language, how I can joke, how, how I want to speak. Don't, don't say, don't, don't come in here and and, and make claims about what I should do with my money or my finances or my priorities. Jesus, you can, you can come on in. You're welcome. You can, you can be in my life. I'll worship you. I'll call you God. I'll pray to you. I'll go to church. Just so long as you don't tell me what I can do with my body and who I can love and who I can pursue relationship with and how I can act. So long as you don't tell me who I'm supposed to forgive and who's my neighbor and who I'm to love. and Jesus, you're God. welcome. Just stay in your place. Make sure you serve my purposes. And that's exactly what the Philistines are doing. And this happens every single day. For all of us, we are many times saying this to Jesus. Jesus, we love you. Come on in. You're so powerful and mighty and amazing. Just be quiet and serve my purposes, though. And so this is happening all over the place, all the time where we place Jesus next to our career. Say, Jesus, I'm so happy you're along for the ride. You're welcome to my life. Just please give me success in my career. Make sure you serve that. Make sure you make me successful. Make sure you make sure I'm respected. Jesus, come come into my life. You can sit right next to my pursuit of pleasure. So long as you make me as happy as I can be. Don't tell me what to do, what I can't do. Come sit next to my idol of pleasure. Come sit next to my idol of happiness. You serve that one. You see, the Philistines don't really want to get rid of Yahweh. They just want to domesticate Him. Where they can control Him. Use Him for their purposes. Which is exactly what so many of us do as well. And in fact, Satan is pleased. He's pleased if you reject Jesus altogether. He'd be very happy with that. But he would also be just as content if you just make Jesus like another idol. Even if you recognize he's the Lord. He's the Savior. But not exclusively. He'd love it if you reject Jesus altogether, but he's just as content if you say, yeah, Jesus, come sit next to my other gods that I worship. And the Philistines do this with the God of Israel. And then they come back to to see Dagon the next morning, and they're in for quite a surprise. They come in, and they find that Dagon is bowing down to the God of Israel. And then there's this interesting phrase, that they walk up to Dagon and put him back in his place, which is kind of this like theological statement of, right? Like, hey, if your idol needs you to place him and stand him back up, he probably has no power, because it's an object. It's not alive. And so they, they set him back up like that was embarrassing, kind of weird. Like, let's just put him back and maybe no one will notice. And then they come back the next morning and this just amazing reality it's been decapitated, its arms are chopped off, it's fallen on the ground, it's just a stone. They had thought that Dagon defeated the God of Israel. They thought the God of Israel was done, he's less powerful, he's been defeated. He's been domesticated. He's been tamed. He now serves our God. We have conquered over Yahweh, and yet they come in the next morning and find he's not dead. He's alive. It's like they come to the tomb and see, oh, the God of Israel is actually not dead. He is alive. He is alive. He is living. He has conquered the Philistines' God. And so what's interesting is what happens here is God allows His presence to be stolen and marched away from His people, which seems like defeat. God allows Himself to be captured and stolen away. He allows His presence to be carried away from His people into the hands of His enemies. And He allows it to look like He's been defeated. But all of this was so that he could put his power on display and show, I am not a dead object like your gods, I'm alive. Which is much like the cross. Jesus goes to the cross and he dies. And everyone that's been following him is crushed. Because why? It looks like defeat. It looks like the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, the savior of the world has been killed. He has been defeated. God's enemies have won. He's dead. And they're fearful and they run and hide. And it looks like defeat. And everyone that hated Jesus was rejoicing. And then what happens? On the third day, they go to check on the body of Jesus and they find out he's not here. He is risen. He is alive. It looked like defeat, but God was doing something in that. He was actually being victorious through what looked like defeat. That's exactly what he's doing here. That through the death of Jesus, he brings victory over sin and death and Satan. And it is the same thing here through his capture. He brings victory over the Philistines and their gods. And he shows what Psalm 135 says. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. God was proclaiming to the nations in this story... Your idols are dead. They cannot hear you. They cannot see you. They have no breath in their lungs. They are dead objects. But me, the God of Israel, I am alive. And he does what Colossians 2 tells us, which is what Jesus did on the cross. He does a foreshadowing in this moment where he disarms the rulers and the authorities and puts them to open shame by triumphing over them. And so God puts on display that he is alive. And when God shows us who he is, it demands some kind of response. And he's showing himself to the Philistines saying, I'm alive. How are you going to respond to this? Will you turn from your gods and come to believe in the God of Israel, the one true God? Will you, the, the, the living God, or will you just continue in your idolatry? And that's what they do. They choose to continue in their idolatry. They're, they're kind of freaked out but it doesn't lead them to repentance. It doesn't lead them to to recognize this is the God we need to be worshiping. And so they continue in their polytheism when they should have turned. And it is a reminder for us that as we see that when Jesus is alive and our idols in our life are dead, success can't hear you and serve you, wealth can't hear you and serve you, your reputation can't hear you and serve you, pleasure can't make anything of your life, it is only the one true God, Jesus. Your idols are dead. Will we turn from those things and turn to Him? So first God shows that he's alive. Then he shows this, that he is the supreme one true God. Look at what he does as you continue in this story. After the whole thing with Dagon kind of is embarrassing, then in verse six, you see that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people and they broke out in tumors. And we're told later that, Something, something to do with mice was like ravaging the land or something like that. And there's, there's many that, that, that's, that think what's happening here is God has actually brought an infestation of rodents into the Philistines and that through them has brought tumors. I've, I had a rat in my house uh, over Christmas. It was horrifying and it was one. It was disgusting and gross. I couldn't sleep for two weeks. I really like empathize with the Philistines right here. I'm like, this is horrible. It's disgusting. He sends us in and his hand is heavy against them and tumors just start breaking out all over the place. And it's like the Lord is sending plagues to the Philistines. Like he did with the Egyptians in Exodus. And it has this great phrase, this great verse where it says, deathly panic was throughout the whole city deathly panic because the hand of God was heavy. And so they call all their leaders together and like, well, what do we do? What do we do with this thing? It's causing tumors. It's horrible. And they start sending it from one city to another until the third city finally catches on like, nah, don't bring that over here. We'll send that back to where it should go. So they call together all their leaders and like, we need to send this back to the people of Israel. And the reason they do that is because they remember the stories about what the God of Israel did in Egypt. And they're like, hey, let's not forget history. Let's remember who this God is and what he's done, and let's not mess with him anymore. And what's so ironic is the pagan nations that don't follow the God of Israel are seeming to have a better memory of who God is than the Israelites do. Now, it's all motivated for self-gain. They're not trying to worship him. They just want to self-protect themselves but they seem to remember, which is actually the whole reason why God did what he did in Exodus, why he hardened Pharaoh's heart, why he sent the plagues, why he did everything so miraculously. He told us this. He said this in Exodus chapter nine. He said, for this purpose, I raised you up. And he's talking about Pharaoh. To show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. What's that saying? The whole reason... I did this amazing story and hardened Pharaoh's heart is because I want to show the nations what I'm like. And it's proven successful because the Philistines, remember. And the same thing in the book of Exodus, we're told in Exodus chapter 12, that as God brings the last plague, where he's going to strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, he tells us this, that he's doing this. And by doing this, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. So what was happening when the people of God were enslaved to Egypt and he was bringing all these plagues and, and removing Israel from Egypt, God tells us that that wasn't primarily about Israel versus Egypt. That was about Yahweh versus the Egyptian gods. And he's showing himself to be the one true God. And it's the same thing happening here. This, isn't, this story isn't so much about Israel versus the Philistines. This is about Yahweh versus the Philistines gods. And God's again saying... I'm going to show once again to the nations, I'm the one true God. Not your idols, not your statues. It's me. And in this, God is proclaiming so loudly that he will not share his throne. He will not share his glory. Not with other gods, not with you and me. He will be supreme. And so there's very real spiritual warfare happening in this story and in our lives too. In fact, Paul, one of the authors in the New Testament, considered idol worship to actually be demon worship. He would say when, when, when pagans offer food, sa- food sacrifices to idols, they're actually engaging in worshiping demons. Which, which almost goes to show us that this isn't actually just like, dude, like I'm worshiping this like plant object right here and it's just weird and it's nothing and it's fake. Actually, the scriptures seem to teach us that actually you're, you're, you're worshiping Demons, you're worshiping Satan and and, and what he's doing. Through idols, through raising up of idols, God's enemies is trying to, to distract people to say, don't worship the one true God, worship these idols. And that's demonic activity. It's real spiritual warfare happening. And so God is proclaiming, I am the one true God. No one else, nothing else, no kind of fallen angel, no human, no nothing. I am the one true God. I will not share my throne with anyone or anything And in this, God claims total exclusivity. Which is exactly what Jesus does when he comes on earth. Here's a few things Jesus said, or said about Jesus. Jesus said this in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. He doesn't say, I am one of the ways to the Father. I am one of the ways to life. You can also worship Dagon or you can go through um, different, different idols or different gods or different religions just so long as you're passionate and committed. No, he says, it's me. I am the one true God. No one comes to the Father except through me. He claims exclusivity. Or in Acts chapter four, it says there's salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Or John chapter three, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is a consistent theme throughout the Scriptures. God is revealing His character and His nature to the world to say, there is no God but me. There is no way to be saved but through me. It doesn't matter how sincere you are, how passionate you are, how deeply you believe it, how committed you are, how many people you tell about it, how good of a person it seems to make you. If it's not through me, it's idol worship. It's dead. And what this is meant to do is it's meant to show you if you don't belong to Christ, if you don't believe in the one true God, that ought to terrify you. Because what God does here among the Philistines is but a small preview of the judgment of God upon his enemies. If you harden your heart against him and continue to reject him and continue to deny him and continue to say you are not who you are, it will be much worse than mice and tumors. It will be the wrath of God separation from him this is but a small preview of that and this phrase that there was deathly panic throughout the whole city because God's hand was heavy there imagine that on an an eternal scale but this is also meant to proclaim to the people of Israel and to us that if you do belong to him man you better be filled with confidence in who he is You better be filled with the utmost confidence in who he is because what he is saying is, I am the one true God and I will be victorious over my enemies always. Full stop. Don't be scared. Some of us really need to hear that because we're scared right now. We're scared of a lot of things happening, there's a virus. A lot of us may, maybe, maybe you are scared of the political climate or you feel like things are going or you're scared of what the religious setting looks like and where things are headed or where things might be going or financially where you're at. Or, there's a whole lot of reasons to be scared. But let's remember what this story tells us, that God will defeat His enemies and we have no need to be scared. It's not the church's job to defeat God's enemies. It's His job he'll do it. He doesn't need you. He brings you along. Absolutely. But listen to this story. Israel forgot who their God was. So God said, I'm going to show everyone who I am. And I'm going to fight for you, even though you're sinning against me, even though you're disobeying, I'm going to have mercy on you and go defeat the enemies that you can't. Which is exactly what he does on the cross. You can't defeat your own sin. You can't defeat death. You can't remove the sting of death. You can't be good enough to get God's favor. You can't defeat the enemy of sin, death, and Satan, but I can, and I'll do it for you in your place. Trust in me. Be confident in me. There is nothing that will thwart my plans. No persecution, no political landscape, no religious landscape, no nothing that happens will thwart my plans. Nothing. Be confident in me. That's what he's saying. That's what he longs for his people to believe This is his story. He wins. Like we literally know the end of the story. He wins. Don't be scared. We need to have our confidence restored in the word of God, in the gospel message, in the spirit of God, our confidence in evangelism that we have have nothing to be afraid of. Not because we're strong, but because we follow the one true God. And so the Philistines they decide to send the ark back knowing they need to somehow appease Yahweh in some way for their sins. They don't really know how to though because they don't have the law. They don't know how this god is supposed to be worshiped. So they kind of call together all their religious experts of like, "So what do you know? Like what should we do here? What how do we like make this god happy and so he doesn't kill us anymore and what and what do we do?" And they kind of come up with this plan of how they're going to appease the god of Israel and it involves creating these golden images and Anyways, they kind of do their best. They should have gone and asked the people of Israel, hey, what are we supposed to do? We realize we shouldn't have done this. Like, what do we do? And they come up with, with the best that they can do. Um, but it's pretty offensive to God if you know the law because what they do is they offer graven, unclean images to Him. God's not worshiped by golden images of unclean items like tumors. But they're trying to do their best. And they put the ark on a cart, which is actually strictly forbidden. They're not supposed to do that either. But they're just like, get this thing out of here. We don't want this. And in this, we are going to see one last thing about the character of God and who he is, is he's going to reveal to his own people, because they have forgotten, that he is holy. And holy doesn't just mean he's perfect. The word holy means set apart, means he's distinct, he's different. There's no one like him. He is above everyone and everything. He is utterly different and to be worshiped. He's holy. And so the ark arrives and they kind of come up with this system because they think in the back of their minds, well, maybe this is all just a coincidence. So they get two milk cows, which basically is is telling us they're female cows. Okay. I know. Crazy knowledge right there. Female cows. And they say, take their babies away from them. And they're cows that have never been yoked before, which means they had no idea what they're doing, how they're supposed to operate, like how they walk straight and in tandem together. And they say, okay, well, because they've never been yoked before and we've taken their babies away, everything in them, in their instincts, is going to want to turn around and go back to their babies. So let's kind of concoct a test. We send them on their way. If they go, then we'll know it was the Lord that did this, the Lord, the God of Israel. But if they come back or they don't, can't figure out what to do, then we just know it's a coincidence. And so they send the cows on their way and it tells us that they walk in a straight line, lowing the whole way. So they go directly towards them, which was they interpreted as this clearly was the God of Israel. And as the ark arrives, it arrives to um, a specific group of people in Israel. It's the Levites. Now, if you remember the Levites, this is the priestly tribe. These are the people that God chose when he we set up the 12 tribes of Israel. He said, these are going to be my priestly people, meaning they, know, they should know the law. They should know how to worship God. They should know how to do sacrifices, how to treat the ark of God. Of all the people, these are the ones that should be receiving the ark. So it's going to the right people. And they see it and it tells us that they rejoice, which is great. They should (laughs) rejoice. And that's about the only good we see. Everything else goes downhill for them. All of it falls apart. You see, the Philistines, they have no idea how to atone atone for their sins. There's no really way for them to know. But the Levites should know. And so what happens is the ark comes, they rejoice, they take the ark off and they they realize, okay, there's cows here. Let's offer the cows as a sacrifice to the Lord, which sounds good, except God is really clear when he established sacrifices, it's only supposed to be bulls, male cows, not female. I don't know why. It's just what he decided. And they're female cows, but they're, they, either they don't know that or they know it and they don't care. But God sets up very strict ways of worshiping Him as a way of revealing to us, you are not like me, I am holy, I'm set apart, I'm perfect. If you are going to, as a sinner, come to me and worship me and be in my presence, you better listen to what I say. And they don't. So they offer these female cows. And then they it tells us that they looked into the ark, which is is strictly forbidden. Not, not, not only are they not supposed to, they're not supposed to look at the exterior, let alone inside of it. In fact, the, 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 the group of people that God had originally assigned to carry and transport the ark from one place or another, they weren't even allowed to look at it or touch it because God is saying, I'm holy. You, you need, something has to happen in order for you to be able to approach me. So we have to deal with your sin in some way. That's what God's trying to communicate through setting up all these things. And so what what they should have done is they actually assumed they should have received it. They should have covered it up because people aren't supposed to look at it. It's supposed to be a a sign of God's holiness. And instead it tells us what they do is they see a giant rock and they just put it on display for everyone to see. They too are treating it almost just like the Philistines. It's like like our trophy's back. Everyone look at our trophy. Touching it in the process as well. And the Lord responds by killing 70 of them. And we say, How harsh. But it was an utter disregard for the holiness of God. It was a way of saying, Who cares about your laws? They're they're stupid and weird. Who cares about your presence? Who cares about your holiness, your nature, your character? And God strikes down the Levites. And it's interesting, he didn't strike down the Philistines for not handling the ark the right way and transporting it, but he strikes down the Levites. Well, if you find that interesting, I do. And I think he holds the Israelites more responsible because they know Yahweh. It's their responsibility to tell the nations what he's like. They must worship and fear the Lord more than the nations. They know his mighty works. They know his stories. They know his character. They know his voice. But they've either either forgotten or they've just deliberately not cared. And so the Lord strikes down 70 of them and it tells us that they lamented God's heavy hand against them. It should have said that they lamented their own sin and they repented. But instead they were just sad that God did that to them. And they let out this cry, which is really interesting. In verse 20 of chapter 6, they say, God just killed a bunch of us. Who, who is even able to stand before such a holy God? And so it's as if they kind of see, oh yeah, oh, yeah we remember he is holy. We're, we're supposed to treat him a certain way. And he struck us dead and we're sad. I guess, who can even stand before the, this holy God? It comes across to me almost just like apathy. Rather than like repentance, let's return to him, let's come back, let's lament over our sin and and return to his word and remember what he's like and how we're supposed to engage with him. And instead they just say like, well, who can even stand before him? The truth is no one can stand before this holy God apart from Christ. And the whole reason God set up all these laws was to show us that that on your own you cannot stand before this holy God. There's something that needs to be done, and it's why Christ came. He came to pay the price for our sins. He came to stand in our place to have His blood shed for our sins. He was killed so that we wouldn't be. He was our mediator. So that now those that believe in Christ and what He's done on the cross can stand before Him can stand before a holy God, not based off of their own merit, but in Christ. And so God brings this ark back to his people while also reminding them, I'm holy and you've forgotten. I don't need you. I can defeat any enemy I want apart from you. But it's also God's mercy And His grace to bring His presence back and reminding His people, yes, I am holy, but I am also a merciful God who loves you. And you're still my chosen people. And I still want to use you. And there's so much hope for us in that. That He's reminding us again, even when we've tramped all over His holiness, even when we have worshipped other gods and set Him next to our own idols, He reminds us that there is forgiveness for our sins in the cross. And he calls us to walk humbly with him. That's the point of his holiness, is that we would be humbled into obedience. To say, I am not like you. And wow, what a God you are that even though I'm not like you and I can't be with you, you would take the punishment that I deserved so that I can be with you. What a good God you are. Help me follow you. That's what he's doing for Israel. Walk humbly with me. The truth is for us as the church in 2021, we have very much the same purpose as the people of Israel. We are to show the nations who our God is. We are to show the nations who Jesus is. But if we're honest, a lot of us, we don't even know who he is. We've forgotten who he is. We've forgotten what his voice sounds like. We've forgotten what his word sounds like. We've forgotten what his presence feels like. And so how are we to put him on display when we've forgotten? And so there's this call to remember. Remember who God is. And that's his mercy. And he's calling that to us again today. Time and time again, remember who I am. Remember that I, I am alive. I have paid the price for your sins. I am the one true God. I am holy and I love you and your mind. mine. Remember who I am. Don't forget who I am. Keep reminding yourself. Remind one another. Remind the next generation. Or else you you will forget. And when you forget, the nations forget. It's been said that one generation believes the gospel. The next generation assumes the gospel. The following generation denies the gospel. May we never be a church that just assumes everybody knows who God is. Everybody at our church knows the gospel. Everybody at our church knows Jesus. We don't need to talk about it. That's for unbelievers. Tell that to the people that don't know Christ. We got it here. Let's move on to better things. No. We need to remember again and again and again because God wants us to know his heart. He wants to reveal himself to us again and again and again so that we don't forget. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are a forgetful people. We are not deserving of your mercy and your favor. In fact, left to our own, we would look just like the Philistines. We would be left helpless and hopeless, fearful of you. But Jesus, we thank you didn't, you didn't leave us in that place. You came to get us. In your mercy, you came to be the sacrifice for us. We didn't, even, we didn't even know how to worship you. We didn't know how to make things right between us and you, but you did. And in your mercy, you came to rescue us, to die on the cross in our place. And you call us to see who you are and to repent of our sins and believe in you. And you tell us that whoever calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. And so Lord, I even pray this morning right now for anyone here that has never done that, that has never called upon the name of Jesus alone for salvation, that you would draw them to yourself right now in this moment. That it would not be a fear-induced thing of like, well, hell sounds bad and punishment sounds bad, so I'll just take the good stuff. No, but that you would draw You would draw anyone here that does not know you to repentance and faith in you because they see the goodness of who you are. And Father, for those of us that have been following you, that have trusted in you, we need you again to help us remember how good you are. We never want to forget, Lord, Because, Lord, we also want the nations to know who you are. So, Lord Jesus, we need you. Thank you for your mercy to us. We pray this in your name. Amen.